In episode 35 of the Guitar Music Theory podcast, I talk with H.W. from Tone Junkie. We discuss digital amp technology, the Kemper profiling amplifier, and how the Tone Junkie company got started. Greetings, guitar engineers. Welcome to the Guitar Music Theory podcast. I am your host, Desi Serna. Today, I sit down and have a talk with my friend H.W. from Tone Junkie. Tone Junkie is a company that makes and sells amp profiles for the Kemper Profiling Amplifier. You may have seen me in some of the Tone Junkie YouTube videos demoing these amp profiles. Well, today, I talk with the Tone Junkie founder, H.W. We discuss how he got started in business, and we share our opinions regarding digital amp technology. And warning... It's going to get nerdy. All right. Well, let me introduce from Tone Junkie, Mr. H.W. Well, hello there. (laughs) Welcome to the Guitar Music Theory Podcast. Thanks for having me, Desi. Yeah. So we are going to talk about uh, who you are. Yep. uh, Why you are what you are. (laughs) Why I am. Yes. Uh, (laughs) We're going to talk about what Tone Junkie is and what it's uh, all about. We're going to talk about the Kemper Profiler. What is this strange device that more and more people are using? Yeah. What are these video demos that I share from Tone Junkie Uh with um, all of these different amp tones and that sort of thing? And what does this mean to your average guitar player? who's, you know, just playing for fun or maybe has a small band, is this technology something that they should be familiar with? Yeah. Well, they should be familiar with it um, because there is sort of a digital tide, I think, moving into the guitar world. Um, And we'll talk about that. Um, Okay. How did I get, how did I become HW, right? That's uh, that's not what my mother calls me. But um, so I was a, a young guitar player who really got into um, kind of a lot of classic rock stuff, uh, Clapton, Hendrix, just sort of the 60s era, um, you know, late 60s stuff, Woodstock kind of era stuff. Um, Basically and, the stuff that 90% of all guitar players get into. Exactly, yeah. Even if they're 13 and they're just yeah. starting out today. yeah. 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 And probably like thinking back, it was John Mayer who was my gateway into that stuff because it was like kind of really listening to John Mayer. He had this live record where he did a ton of playing and he was doing covers. And then I'd look up on the back of the, the album artwork. Oh, that was a Stevie Ray Vaughan song. Then I got pretty into Stevie Ray Vaughan, you know, mm-hmm. and then, and then obviously um, I was aware of Hendrix and stuff, but got, got into that music and started appreciating it. And that was in the days of like, um, Harmony Central online, if people remember that forum, that was like an old, old oh, guitar wow. forum, like yeah. long time, and they had gear <laughs> reviews. And so I'd go on there and it was, and it was all these guys, you know, talking about Hendrix, you know, and, and Clapton is God and, and, you know, that sort of thing. Right. So, um, but I started playing a lot of worship music and I also played in a, um, in a band in San Francisco. So it'd be like Friday nights at the makeout room. You know, <laughs> play, playing for uh You're playing worship music in the makeout room? I was not playing worship. I was playing the, the music was different <laughs> Friday nights to to Sunday morning, but um it was like Friday nights in the makeout room, uh, and then Sunday mornings at uh, at church, you know. And um and I got really into vintage gear. So I started um collecting. I mean, I would drag into these clubs 
or to a Sunday morning, you know, those old style 70s, 212 big fender uh, cabinets, the ones that were like taller than 412s, because mm. I had posters in my room and that's what Clapton had. You know what I mean? He had some Marshall 412s. Later, he went to some Fender stuff. Like maybe that was like, uh, I don't know, Derek and the Domino's time or whatever. But after Cream, he started playing a lot of Fender stuff. And um, for the gear junkies, obviously now he's kind of in a tweed phase. And uh, no offense, tweeds are like old man amps. So I think he'll stay with the tweeds for a while. You know what I mean? I love tweed amps, but but they are, they're, uh, they're well, Joe Bonamassa is not so old, but um, but he's into them. Um, but anyway, Clapton. His is, audience is old. His audience, that's true, right? But they're, and um, that's not a knock on old people because I'm old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but well, you're not much older than me. I'm older than you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't see much gray hair in your head. And, uh, <laughs> man, I'm adding new gray hairs daily. So I started, um, I started just dragging in all his vintage gear, and I really developed a love for for old stuff. You know, at the time, all I could afford was like silver face, uh, fenders, you know, cause that was relatively cheap, mm-hmm. you know, in the early aughts. And, um, uh, you know, there was a seventies fender stuff was just not really loved, but it sounded great. And there was a lot of it that you could easily convert back to blackface spec. So I started buying a bunch of stuff and, uh, my wife's wedding ring, uh, funny enough was actually purchased with money I got from flipping gear. I mean, it was like flip pedals until I could get an amp, flip a couple amps till I could get an expensive guitar, flip some of that. Mm. And I sold an original 1987 uh, Marshall Silver Jubilee head to buy her an engagement ring. That's so romantic. <laughs> so, what's funny is she hardly wears the ring anymore. She now likes this more subtle sort of ring. Now, does this story end where you're like, <laughs> and then 10 years later, I was able to buy that amp back and it's sitting in our bedroom. <laughs> I wish I'm going to sell the ring. I think if she, if she might not notice and I'll buy the amp again. But, uh, no, I have had a silver Jubilee since. Um, but anyway, I got, um, I started, um, I, I've just been in love with gear forever. And, um, and really I consider myself a tone junkie and that's sort of where the name comes from. So instead of gear nerd, mm-hmm. you wanted to come up with something that tone was junkie, yeah. more unique. I like yeah. it. And, and, and so because it's not really about the gear. It, ultimately, it's about how does the gear sound? It's yeah. about the tone. Yeah, it's about the tone. And obviously, um, you know, like everybody else, I, I spend too much time looking at gear online and not enough time practicing the guitar, right? But but that's normal. You know, like gearheads, you know, in the in the car world, they do the same thing. You know what I mean? Um, the, the gear is romantic and it's beautiful and it's old and it's... It's cool, you know, so everybody needs a rabbit hole to go down. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We just got to find something. We all just, we need to find some interest. Yeah. there's. An we al- have brains. We have this brain power and we need to use it and we need an outlet for it. Yeah. There's an element of escapism to it, you know, just, mm-hmm. um, it, it's fun to relax and just think about these things that are relatively inconsequential, but, um, but are just amazing. You know what I mean? I just, I, when I see like an early sixties Vox AC 30, it's like artwork. You know what I mean? I have in my, I mean, you've seen where we shoot those videos. If people sort of look in some of the camera angles behind you in a lot of those videos are all these old electro harmonics pedals. And they have this sort of fifties, like art deco sort of look, just like stainless steel, big pedals with these like very simple graphics. And it's sort of, 
they're old school American. They're beautiful. So when I thought like, what do I want to put up in this room? I don't know much about art, but I thought, well, electroharmonics pedals are like art. So I'll just put those up there, you know, and they're not very practical. They're way too large, you know, but they just look cool. You know, I have pedals up there on that shelf that I maybe have never plugged in. And they go real well with those floral shirts. You yeah. Wear. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so long story short, and we'll get into the digital stuff. I, um, I moved to Nashville and uh, brought some amps with me, moved into an apartment, couldn't play any of the amps. And I went into a couple guys' studios. And you know around here, because um, we're both in the Nashville area, home studios are where everything's getting done now. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the big studios have closed. Um, there's there's some left. Uh, but really, there's been a trend for a long time of um, producers, especially the successful ones, building in studios into their home or maybe in a barn on their property. And so when I got to Nashville, I met all these songwriters and producers and I was, uh, you know, I'd hang out with them <clears throat> and I'd go in and I'd see a lot of their, um, their production areas and, <clears throat> excuse me, they were just using a lot of digital stuff more than I thought. And they had converted mostly, they had gotten away from a lot of their outboard gear and were using mostly UA plugins and they still had a lot of outboard gear, but they just weren't using it anymore. Right. And, um, and I started seeing Kemper's. And I, I was kind of aware of the Kemper, but I was like, what is this? And um, they were saying, oh, this is a cool box and you can do this and that. And then I had a buddy, um, the Suze, who one of his good friends was like, he hosted like the very first Kemper party when they were unveiling the Kemper in Nashville like 10 years ago. And so he had some of the original amps that come that came in the Kemper at that time, um, you know, say like, you know, chief one or something. And that's defaulted in the Kemper and it's his matchless chieftain. And later, you know, I profiled that and everything and did my own version of it. But, um, I, I came to learn that the, the Kemper was, is really popular here in Nashville in terms of, it's like, I think number three in the most popular Kemper cities in the world. It's like Berlin, London, Nashville. And it's by far the most popular city in America for the Kemper. And it's because of all those producers. Yeah, it's good. all the music industry mm-hmm. here. Yeah, totally. Because yeah. it is one of the best tools you can use if you're uh, recording music and playing live. So we'll talk more about about that. So, so you are just naturally a gear nerd. Yep. Um, tone junkie, as you mm-hmm. like to be called. Sure. <laughs> and you got introduced to this new device, uh, the Kemper, and. So you became you were intrigued by it. You became blown away by it. You 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 became a Kemper convert. Well, so they're they're semi popular around Nashville, and I had this sort of converging of events where I saw them in a couple studios. Um, my buddy told me about one and said it's it's legit. You should try it. Now I'm a tube snob at this time. You know, I'm like vintage. Every I don't even play reissue Fenders. You know, it's like. No, I got my Bandmaster 70s head and my original 65 Princeton and all all this stuff, you know. Um, I had a couple orange amps, but I was into vintage stuff, you know, and, and, and modern stuff. But in terms of, you know, being authentic, you know, I, I won't say drank the Kool-Aid, but it, it definitely I was of the opinion that vintage is better, tube or nothing. Like that was my opinion, tube or nothing. And... I went and played at a church. I'd never played at this church before. It was my home. It became my home church. But 
I went and played at this church and I'd been saying, Hey, I'll play with you guys sometime. And they said, yeah, we need somebody in like two weeks. So I showed up and I plugged in my, I had like a $2,000 Sir Bella 112 amp. This is like, you know, Sir's version of an American amp on steroids. You know, it's just the perfect 6L6 kind of amp. It's actually designed by Jim Kelly. A lot of people don't know that. But Jim Kelly, who famously made those Jim Kelly amps. Not um, the football player. Not the football player. Uh, Jim Kelly. He made some SRV, played some of his amps and some live shows and stuff. Um, but he was of that era. Um, he designed those amps for John Sir. It's a killer amp. I love the Sir Bella. So one of my all-time favorites. I came in with a pedal board that had um, like a Cali 76 compressor, a king of tone. You know, like a probably just a reissue 808. Um, you had all the top shelf stri the trifecta, yeah, the trifecta as I call it. All three Strymon pedals: the Timeline, the Big Sky, the Mobius. So right there, that's probably two thousand dollars worth of pedals and a two thousand dollar amp. And I had my Sir uh, Strat that I think I got used for sixteen hundred bucks. But we're around the two K range, right? So mm -hmm. I'm carrying in six thousand dollars worth of stuff. You know, this, this is top shelf. This is going to sound great. Mm -hmm. And the guy that I was playing with that day, there was another guitar player that day. He carried in a Kemper. I didn't know he played a Kemper. It just showed up again, you know, after three weeks here, right? He plugs in his Kemper. He has some Strymons too. And at one point I had my in-ears in, I had mic'd up my guitar amp and I thought they hit the track. Cause we were playing along with some stems. Like it had this, we were playing along with like some ambient keyboard patches that were going to play along with us, you mm -hmm. know, in the track. And then I looked over and realized he was playing the guitar and I went, Whoa, because it sounded so polished and yeah, the sound sounded, quality was so good. You it thought sounded they produced. The track. Yeah. It sounded produced. And, and, you know, if you play with in-ears and you play live, you, you know, kind of the difference in that sound that, that, if the track starts, it's, it's compressed and it's reverby and it's, it's just polished. It's finished, you know? Mm -hmm. And he, he then turned off the delays and, and verbs and got something a little closer to a guitar, you know? And, um, it sounded great. It's, and then I played and it sounded small compared comparatively. Mm -hmm. And, um, I sort of at that moment had the realization that his guitar sound <clears throat> sounded like a guitar in a track and mine sounded like an SM57 because that's what I was using. Which is a, which is a microphone. $99 yeah. Yeah. microphone. And, and probably the most common microphone you're going to find for live guitar use. I mean, if you go anywhere, they're going to give you a 57, maybe a, right. maybe a, an alternative, but it's going to be 57. Now they're not bad mics at all. They're great mics. They're tough. They put the guitar very focused in the mid range. They're a dynamic microphone, so they don't have a, a a broad frequency spectrum. But they're generally used because um, a fifty seven kind of shelves the low end, and it's got enough high end, but it really pushes the mid range, and that's usually where engineers, especially live, want the guitar. And then, so, right. So fifty seven is a good mic, but it sounds like a fifty seven. You know what I mean? It doesn't sound like um, you know. Uh, Royal Albert Hall. You know what I'm saying? It's not these big, it doesn't sound like a Robin Ford record. You know, he's going to be using other gear, you know? And so it has a sound and his sounded just bigger and, and more airy. And, and I thought, and maybe more 3d. And I thought, well, gosh, 
I, that thing sounds better than all the gear I just brought in. Mm-hmm. And look, to be fair, I'm not saying that the Kemper sounds better than tube amps. Had I gotten two microphones and ran it through two pre's, I could have got a sound rivaling his. But it's because his Kemper was capturing a multi-microphone setup with preamps. And I was just using a 57 straight to what, what might have been a Behringer board. You know, not like a Neve yeah. you know, console or something. I want to talk... I, let's let's say that for a little bit later. I'm gonna, yeah, I want to yeah. talk about that. Like how... How does the Kemper get its amp sounds? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll leave it at that for now. Sure, but we'll, sure. We'll be coming. We'll be coming back for that. So, yeah. but this is when you had this realization that this 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 gear, this Kemper, this uh-huh. thing, this strange looking device that looks like it's off the set of uh, the Mash television yeah, yeah, show. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, uh, it's something special. There's something to it. Yeah, and I, it was the first time I really went uh, like like wow that like like digital digital's come a long way. You know, yeah. it, it it was very convincing. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you you get introduced to this new gear. Mm-hmm. Um, you're into it. How it, uh, how did you then get to... Uh, I want to talk about how you started Tone Junkie. Mm-hmm. But I also want to get into more details of the Kemper. You know what? Let's talk more about... The, um, let's do this. Mm-hmm. Let's back up a little bit because the Kemper was not the first digital um, kind of al- amp alternative that True. was on the market. It yeah. really kind of goes back. I mean, you could say, oh, it goes all the way back to the Rockman, right? right, right By right, Tom right. Schultz. Right, right, right. Um, but really, like this new wave, um, the digital revolution started with Line 6 in the yeah, 90s. Yeah, for sure. I think the thing that really um, kind of set it off was um, the DL4 delay. Because that was maybe the first pedal that people, it was like an all-in-one super delay kind of thing. The DL4 is that old green line yeah, six delay. With four foot switches. Yeah, and it became hugely popular because you used to buy multiple delays if you wanted multiple delays. And it also came out in a time, uh, kind of in the late 90s, when you know th- there was, pop had moved, was moving a little bit towards more delay on guitar sounds again after getting out of grunge and stuff, you know? And so, um, I'm trying to think what bands were out at the time. Um, you know, like funk was coming back. There was a smash mouth kind of, uh, bands like that. And, and bare naked ladies even had like some fun music that was just cleaner guitar. And there's more room for delay, right? It wasn't so aggressive, but line six was the first ones to kind of take, Let's take all these sounds and put them into one unit. And it turned out to be really popular. Now, none of the other ones were popular. You know, the amp modeler wasn't very popular. The chorus one wasn't very popular or whatever, the trim and chorus version. Well, they first came out with the little, the first pod was the bean-shaped thing. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Which so, which was interesting because it's like, oh, this is interesting. You can plug into this and put on some headphones mm-hmm. and you can get these sort of amp-like yeah, sounds. Yeah, yeah. And it was kind of, I mean... So it was kind of neat at the time, yeah. but it wasn't anywhere near the sound quality of, no, of it, what we were used to in in terms of yeah. what we heard in recorded music and stuff it, like that. Yeah, and it's still not. And fun, I had a guitar teacher who actually used the the very first Line 6 product I'm aware of was a little-known amp called like the AX212, and it even predated the pod. Mm. And it was just all black, and it looked kind of ugly and... I don't think they sold very many of them, but then they went to the pod and and they started expanding with all the, with those pedals that we're talking about and stuff. He played one. I always thought it sounded fine, 
but he was really into like eighties tone. So his, his clean always had chorus on it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was into these sort of Saldano esque, you know, Marshall-y sounds. And, um, you know, so at the time too, I don't think I knew how to determine what great tube tone was, but that always sounded fine to me. You know, I started using line six when it came out. Um, and I, I didn't really know. I, I wasn't a tone expert at the time and mm-hmm. I certainly wasn't a gear expert, but I was playing, uh, in bands. I was playing in cover bands and I was working in them and I was pretty successful. And I was also running sound from stage. Mm-hmm. So I was always looking for solutions to help me, um, control stage noise. Sure. Um, to make it easier to run sound. Mm-hmm. Um, I played a lot of different venues. Sometimes we couldn't even use a full band. We had mm-hmm. to, we had to play along with some tracks or something like that. Sometimes the drummer would use Roland V drums. Like I actually bought a set of Roland V drums when it came out Yeah, and I, and I told my drummer, Hey, I bought you a new drum set. We got some gigs coming up here and we can't use real drums. And he quit but, the band, right? Um, well, he wasn't, you know, the drummers were not always happy about it, but they were, yeah. it, it was, it, um, it fixed a problem and it enabled us to play some venues and some gigs that we wouldn't have normally been able to play. And so, so they got to play and they got paid. So I think they appreciated that. So that right there, what you just said, is the is one of the things that's really driving the change right now. Because guitar players are no less in love with tube amps and old technology. But we have less and less choices. So there's a reason that Carrie Underwood's band was told, you have to go to Fractal. And that choice came from tour and managing. If you're not familiar, listeners, Fractal is another yeah. company yeah. that produces a, a digital um, amp uh, I, alternative. I would, yeah, it's kind of like Line 6, more expensive. Like I'd say it's like the Cadillac version of a Line 6 stuff. It's, right. it's kind of similar in, in how it works. Um, For practical purposes, it's, it's difficult um, to... In live settings, if you don't have... Uh, for those of you that don't have a lot of experience um, with that... Um, it's difficult to control stage noise mm-hmm. so that you don't have other instruments bleeding into vocal mics and you make it difficult for the person who's, you know, front of house uh, mixing. And particularly when you're in rooms where you have to control the volume level, mm-hmm. you know, if you're in a situation where the guy out front, you know, has the power and the speakers and the, and the, the, um, space where he can turn, turn up the live mix out front extremely loud so he can just overpower right. whatever's happening on stage. But most of the time that's not happening, certainly with people who are just playing in local clubs and bars or weddings, yeah. but even in, even with, you know, uh, uh, big artists, yeah, big, big artists. Yeah. yeah. There, there are still times when, if technology is available to simplify that process, they they want it. Everyone is experiencing the crunch of the change in the music industry, which is music artists used to make money on releasing music and selling music. And that's no longer how they make money anymore. Now they make money touring on the road. That's the primary source of income for most artists today. Mm-hmm. Um, now, some of them are so big, they might get huge endorsement deals, you know. Uh, someone like a Taylor Swift could do a Revlon commercial. She might make more doing that than she does on her actual music now. But she's going to make a lot of money going on the road. 
Carrie uh, and Carrie Underwood. If people are you know avid YouTubers, they'll know Sean Tubbs. He has a very popular YouTube channel. Yeah. He was the guitar player at that time, and so he had to make the switch from tube to these fractal digital units. And it was not, um, you know, it was no choice. I, I had lunch with him one time, and he sort of explained this. It was not a choice. It was a the stage show is changing. We need to do sets. We need to do like, sometimes the guitar player is going to come on the stage. Other time there's other people jumping around the stage. So in the interest of the stage show, we're not just going to have a band sitting here anymore. So you're, you're done with that. And then he's talked about on other videos that he's had, he has a gig at the, at the Ryman or the, um, uh, the grand Ole Opry, you know, an old famous venue. And, uh, they have a very quick load in load out because it's like a celebration show. So they're mm-hmm. going to come on, play one thing really fast. And then they're going to get off because Keith Urban's coming up and his band's got to get in and then they're going to do a duet and then it's off the stage. And it's just sort of just, it's, it's sort of the Hollywood production as well as a change in technology kind of forcing its will on the music industry. And, you know, no longer can, does Ingve Malmsteen get to bring 26, 412 cabs, you know, on the stage, well, and, you know, or maybe he does. You know? And <laughs> let's not forget that back in the day when he was doing that, or when you saw Kiss, you know, playing, um, you know, standing in front of a wall of marshals, yeah. uh, you know, there, there are some famous pictures now circulating mm-hmm, the internet mm-hmm. where you're, you're seeing a behind the scenes look at those cabinets and they're empty. There's no speakers right, in there. Right. It was for show. <laughs> and that's because, um, the reality is you yeah. can't use those types of amps on stage. It you just, it, it's, it's a mess. I mean, it's like, even like a, a lot of Alex Lifeson and some of the, you know, more recent rush tours in the past 10 years or something. Um, he had these stacks of amplifiers on stage, but then mm-hmm. everything was going through a Palmer, um, what are those things called? The speaker emulators. Speaker emulators. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. that they could re- they could uh, eliminate the speaker from mm-hmm. the signal chain and go direct to the board and um, direct to the front of house and direct to the in-ears. And it's just a way to, um, in a way, you can actually get a better sound. Yeah. Well, we should talk a little bit more. Cons- consistent. You can get a consistent a sound consi- yeah. and you can control the levels and... Um, uh, you know, you can feed things into the in, into in ears. It also saves a lot of hearing too. Let's not forget that for years, when before this technology came onto the scene, um, everyone was damaging their their hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, so now, with in ears, with controlling stage volume, with using uh, a lot of uh, digital, uh, you know, amp substitutes, you're re- you know, the more you can reduce mm-hmm. the noise on stage, the more you're saving ears. The easier you make the mixing. It's just, um, and then I would just add to it that. You know, it's become in the same way that the electric guitar, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to say replaced or surpassed, but, you know, uh, the the way that it it became the tool of the trade Mm -hmm. for popular music um, and then amplifiers and then, you know, effects pedals and, you know, echo pedals, delay, Um, the digital stuff. It's the tools of the trade now. Like just because it's digital doesn't mean that it's like cheating or it's not somehow authentic. Uh, There's, there's, we would never say that, oh, if you're watching a digital television, you're not watching the real thing. If there's not tubes in it, you're not really watching TV. Yeah, a hundred percent. And, and, and I think what a lot of people like kind of forget sometimes is um, in the 1960s, we don't know what Jimi Hendrix's amp sounded like. We just don't. The only 
you know who probably has the most accurate picture of it? Someone who was there and remembers it. If you were there standing in front of the amp. Then you heard Jimmy's And Jimmy you could amp. tell the story. You'd be like, uh-huh. first of all, it was taking my head off. Mm-hmm. Man, the highs coming out of that thing just hurt my ears for two days. But here's, here's what you're getting at. They started with the amp. And yeah. then they mic'd it. Mm-hmm. The room played a role into... Uh, the sound that they captured, sure. they had probably had uh, multiple mics on it with different yeah. positions, going through mic preamps, doing yeah. mixing board. There was post-production. Mm-hmm. When we listen to the Hendrix record, we're listening to a finished product. Yeah. And you're listening to the sonic signature of a lot of uh, vintage pieces of gear. Um, you know, Hendrix was also, um, if you look at a lot of old footage of him, he used to use a 50-foot cord because he liked the high-end roll-off because it was so bright on the strap, yeah. you know, and he would put everything at 10. If you've ever had a Plexi at 10, which I have, um, it's absurdly bright. It's absurdly bright. Um, and then you put a strat into that. So he was using a, a long, a long cable, 50 foot cable to get some high end roll off. Um, but a lot of the 60s sound that we hear in the 70s sound is also the sound of recording. You know, they would record that stuff and they would bounce it to tape. I did a record in 04 and we on purpose took everything into pro tools and then bounced it to tape and back to pro tools because we liked the sound of vintage tape but we didn't know anybody who could mix it on in on tape we had the only people left were people using pro tools no one knows how to and so they still have systems like that that will do it they actually have systems that were recorded live they're very expensive that will actually take your recorded sound go to tape and then into digital into Pro Tools, um, but or you could do it the way I just described. You could record it digital, bounce it out, put it through tape, come back. But that also goes to, you know, um, if you look at like Abbey Road Studios and stuff, the sound of those records was directly uh, uh, influenced by the actual console in Abbey Road, which Rupert Neve made for Abbey Road. There's only one of those. You know, he made models of things and there's multiple boards that Rupert Neve made, but he was hired to custom make these things all the time. And so it was up to the engineer to know one through four on this board have a different pre than five through six and this through this. And he might, and the engineer might've said, or Rupert Neve might've said for drum mics, I'm going to change the pre to do this. And let me just explain for you listeners Mm -hmm. out there that aren't, um, familiar with the recording process, pre's means uh, preamps. Mm-hmm. There are little tiny amplifiers when someone when something is plugged into a mixing board, you gotta amplify that signal uh, coming in and that colors the tone. That's mm-hmm. part of you, when you listen to a record that you and you love the tones on it, you are hearing far more than just the player, the guitar, and the amp. You're hearing everything else that was part of the process of capturing that sound and processing um, and the production. And there's many other things that, um, you know, the EQ mm-hmm. that make the finished product that, that you think sounds so good. So it's it's kind of like, you know, um, think about a, a photograph mm-hmm. that's been photoshopped. Yeah. You know, everything that you listen to on a record, even if it's from even if it's from the '60s or the '70s, it's kind of been photoshopped in a sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, not maybe not digitally, but it, but in a in the studio, yeah. there was a tremendous amount of work that went into polishing up mm-hmm. the sound of those instruments to make the finished product that we know and love. So, what we were talking about earlier, you never heard Jimi Hendrix amp, 
what we mean is we don't you don't know what it actually sounded like to stand in front of his amp when you listen to the uh, Jimi Hendrix record you're not hearing his amp you're you're hearing everything that was mm -hmm. part part of the uh, the uh, recording process and that is what these digital um, amplifiers today can reproduce and in particular mm -hmm. the Kemper captures that I think probably better than anything else. Yeah, so so there's there's amp sims, you know, and, and there's modeling, and that's been the big uh, sort of thing until now. Well, first of all, there's let me back up one because I, I hear this a lot. I hear people say only tubes can produce even order harmonics, and only tubes have tube warmth. And that comes from comparing tubes to solid state transistors. So um, to break that down for people, solid state transistors can create harmonics when they distort, but they can't create even order harmonics, even order harmonics. So they can't create the same harmonics that a tube creates. And so sometimes people think that carries over to digital, but it actually does not. Your analogy of a photograph, I would say it's like this. In the 60s, music... Uh, um, creation and the recording process was a lot like f photography back then when you were really relying on lenses and um, uh, chemical processes to sort of give you photographic effects. So you would use different film and different paper and different lenses to get different, uh, different effects on your, on your photography. Now we still use different lenses, but we also use Photoshop and color grading and things like that, that were technologies we didn't have before. And so we might've liked what a certain solution did when you were putting an old photographic paper in and, and, and had a dark room and you had to let it, you know, sort of materialize into a photo. But now we do color grading on the computer. You know, nobody does the old stuff anymore. You, you might do it, but it's, it's more, um, uh, in the enthusiast market. Right. And so, so most of music production has gone that way. You know, keyboard players had an easy choice. They really got in the 80s. Can you carry a B3 and a Baldwin grand piano and all these electric pianos? Or would you like this Casio keyboard, right? right. And so the option simple is like either don't have different sounds or just carry the digital unit. And that really took 80s pop music by storm. All of a sudden, then they did the same thing with drums and they started – that was that was digital run amok. Because they started taking snares and putting it through compressors and then another compressor and then a reverb and then gated the reverb. And then, and all of a sudden you have a, you have every Phil Collins record, right? You just hear this sound and it's like, is that a drum? <laughs> it doesn't sound like a drum that exists in real life. And now we're starting to see a change where the pressure's on for guitar players. And we're, we're, we're having to rely more on technology. And the technology has actually gotten to a place where it's, it's really good. You know, now with that said, there's nothing like the sensation of standing in front of a loud tube amp and feeling it and moving the air. You know, that'll never, that, there's, there's nothing you can put into your in-ears, into your in-ear monitors that makes you feel like you're in front of a raging marshal that shakes the ground and does all that. That's an awesome feeling. And so I think the digital stuff doesn't take the place of that. But it is, it's, it's like, it has the ability to color grade your tone. You know, you can, you can Photoshop your tone a bit. You can refine it in ways that we wouldn't be able to refine traditional analog gear. And once we've refined it, we can save it and call it back up consistently every single time. You know, I've been playing for decades since I was a teenager. And uh, it's not until I, when I got the Kemper, it was, it, it was such a game changer because 
I had never, ever before been able to sound like that. Yeah. I was only able to get part of the way there. Mm -hmm. I could get an amp and mm -hmm. I could turn it up. But like we've already explained, that's just, that's just part um, uh, of the signal chain mm -hmm. that you hear when you listen to these great tones on, yeah. on uh, the records that you love. And with the Kemper, all of a sudden it's like, I, it was all there because what the Kemper, let's, uh, let's, let's talk about this for a little bit. Yeah. Um, so there are different ways that you can digitally create the sound of, of guitar amps. Yeah. Um, there's modeling, there's, mm -hmm. there's, uh, this, uh, simulation. Um, you know, we have line six fractal. Mm -hmm. There's, a, there's other things in the market, mm -hmm. sure. uh, you know, uh, Tech, Tech 21 uh -huh. has like an analog way of yep, making yeah. their emulation. Yeah. Um, and then, but the Kemper is different. Mm -hmm. It's not something where they go into the software and they're trying to mimic the sound of an amplifier. Yeah. It actually captures the sound of a, of a real, you have to start with the real amplifier a real signal chain in the studio yeah. with the microphones, yeah. a real signal chain, and it captures it yeah. like you would capture it like they studio. captured it exactly. back in the day like, yeah. when, when they were using real amps and stuff. Yeah. And it captures it in this magic box, yeah. the Kemper, and then you can play through it then and it reproduces it. And it is just uncanny. It, in it, fact, even pro professional guitar players usually can't tell the difference in a, in a mix yeah. or when they're like kind of blindfolded and, and put in a room and they're, yeah. they're like, okay, so we've got your amp in the other room. And we also just profile it with the Kemper. So you tell me, we're going to go back and forth here. Mm -hmm. Tell me what's the Kemper and what's your real amp. And many of them can't tell the difference. There's a very popular YouTube video um, called Can the Kemper Save Chappers? And if, I'm sure if anybody watches guitar content on YouTube, of course, they've seen Anderton's videos and stuff. And Rob Chapman has been was one of the early guitar YouTubers. He can't, He gets it wrong on his own signature amplifier. The signature amp that he helps design and then takes on the road for you know two years or something, they profile it and they put it and he says that's it, that's my signature amp. And it's so the he's Kemper. <laughs> he's sitting in a separate room from yes, the amp. Yeah, yeah. He's playing and then he's monitoring his playing through uh -huh. what, uh, studio monitors. They put them through studio monitors to leave it consistent. So they said you're listening through studio monitors and in the other room we have either the Kemper or your amp mic'd up. Now we created these Kemper profiles with the mics in the same exact position as you're listening to him. So he's literally listening to digital copy of his amp with microphones and then the real amp with microphones. Nothing moved, nothing changed. And he couldn't tell. He, he well, not only could he not tell, he, he declared that one is my amp <laughs> and he was wrong, <laughs> it was, yeah. it was, which is funny because, and, and then you get to, you get to this point where in that video specifically, they're, they're, they're trying to like play, like they're just listening to the transient, which is sort of the pick attack of the note. And they're trying to listen. And then it begs the question, like if we're having to get this granular, if everyone has to be silent and we have to pick a note 10 times in a row and then compare to, you know, A, B, A, B, A, B, we're kind of there. Right. We're, we're kind of at the point where yeah. no one, no one in the mix would hear. It. And that's what I would say for anyone who's skeptical. I was skeptical too. And I would say this, I, I don't make the claim that digital's better in terms of tone. I would make the claim that digital's better in terms of the advantages it offers for touring and, um, fly. So many of my friends here in Nashville get all these, uh, fly date gigs for people who don't know a fly date is what they call, Hey, 
We got one night in Tampa. We're going to fly out, do the night, come back. Even I will occasionally get these gigs for sort of independent artists, you know, and it'll pay almost nothing. Maybe it'll just pay the airfare, you know, to get there. The last one I did, I just got into Universal Studios for free because we were playing in Universal Studios, right? So I got to go on the Harry Potter ride, you know, but here's the option. Hey, we're going to Tampa, bring a guitar. What are they going to have in terms of amps? I don't know. They said I can get them to provide an amp. So I can either bring an amp and not know what's there, or I can bring some digital unit and at it, least it, know what I have. Yeah. They'll, they'll provide an amp in Tampa for me, but I don't always know what it is. A lot of times if people have ever used backline equipment, it's not always kept up very well, or it might've broken on a previous gig and no one's really reported it. Mm-hmm. So it's hit or miss. And it might not even be what they say. Sometimes they'll say, you say, I need a twin reverb or a deluxe reverb and you show up and there's a, um, it's a Fender Bassman or it's a Marshall stack. I mean, it could be anything, you know, you never really know, but, um, in terms of tone, I tell people in a mix, you can't tell the difference in, in your in-ears. I don't believe you can tell the difference. If it's apples to apples, if you're really used to a twin and I give you profiles of a Mesa boogie dual rectifier, of course, you're not going to like that. Right. But if it's a digital representation of something you're familiar with, I think the tech has really gotten to a point where players can be happy. It's indistinguishable. Yeah. If if the uh, profile, that's what you call in the Kemper, mm-hmm. when you capture the sound of an amp, it's called a profile. If the yeah. profile is captured um, correctly, yeah. um, then it is indistinguishable. The digital technology can completely capture that sound. Yeah. Um, and by the way, uh, for those of you that are listening and saying, no, no, digital, digital never sound as good as... Uh, analog or tube or whatever. Keep in mind that everything you hear on TV, on mm-hmm. the radio, mm-hmm. um, unless you're listening to phonograph records, mm-hmm. you know, old yeah. vinyl vinyl records, everything you hear has been digitized. Absolutely. Okay. So yeah. when you when you say no, that you know, ACDC never used digital and listen to the glorious sounds of you know those Marshalls on that album. Well, if you're listening to that on Apple Music, you're hearing a digital copy of that. If you're listening to a CD, you're hearing a digital copy of that. Yeah. yeah. So what the Kemper does is it can create digital, pristine digital copies yeah, yeah. of analog tube tones. Yeah, right? and I I think that's that's the best comparison is I think of tubes like vinyl, and then I think of you know, a Kemper profile, like an MP3. And if you're someone who, well, I'd say a wave, sure. A wave. Sure, wave sure, sure, sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, a, a digital version that you can take with you, that's portable. And that is representative of the real thing. If you are an aficionado, you may invest a lot of time in appreciating the differences between those two. But if you are away from your home, away from your listening room with your very expensive all tube amplifiers and you, where you put on your phonograph and sit back and listen, your choice is no music or (laughs) music that way. Right. And so it it has a really great place. Let me touch on the difference between modeling and profiling. Um, So what's been going on since sort of the beginning has been modeling people going, Hey, let's um, people going, Hey, let's, Let's create a digital version of a Vox AC30. Um, And a programmer will sit down and the way they do it now is they actually model the components, the digital components. They get an amplifier uh, schematic and they model the components. Here's what a 10K resistor does to sound. 
Here's what it does to the electric signal. And they model this in a digital environment, and then they create a, a simulated version of that amp. That when you plug into it, the signal that pops out is supposed to be very close or identical. Um, a simulation of what a real Vox AC30 spits out to a speaker. Then they do the same thing with the speaker. They do the same thing with pedals. And this is all very doable. There's no reason this couldn't be done with 100% accuracy. Now, whether the units out there do them with 100% but, but accuracy. it's not. And I'm no expert on, on this, but I can always... There's always yeah. something about... Um, emulation it's yeah it's cool it can be very usable mm -hmm. sometimes in a mix you wouldn't notice it but it always falls a little short to my ears yeah and and there's a lot that goes into that you know line six early on i was not a fan of the helix when i first played it um, and it's still not my favorite unit out there but i do happen to know that the very first helix release the software that was inside was 100 percent done by the line six engineers and then they later hired uh, a gentleman who had worked at dr z to sort of come in and help them understand, well, you need more negative feedback in this circuit. So how do you do that? And then they knew what to, they knew how to do it, but they didn't really know how to design amplifiers. So they still were relying on expertise from the amplifier industry to say, this feels stiff. You need to do this to make it less stiff. And they were, they knew digitally how to create in the digital world but they didn't necessarily know how to make an amplifier less or more stiff or why some AC30s felt amazing and some didn't. You're saying felt. So you're talking more than just the sound. You're talking about as a guitar player is yeah. playing through it, there's a response you expect mm -hmm. from your amplifier. And yeah. sometimes even though it might sound good, it just feels it a little feels strange fun. to yeah. play. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe, maybe the analogy might be a, uh, that um, electronic drums, that mm -hmm. technology has come a long way too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, rolling V drums and that sort of thing. But no matter how great it sounds, what a lot of drummers struggle with is that, but it still doesn't feel like real drums yeah, and that yeah. drives them nuts. So the same is true with a lot of these uh, uh, digital amps. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, that's a, that's a surprising, surprisingly good emulation of a Vox AC30, but it still feels strange. I feel like I'm not getting sustained right. or, or something. The pick attack feels weird or something. And some of that can be because the Vox AC30 they looked at was different than the one you're playing. You know, there's been so many AC30s through time. The circuits changed a lot. But sometimes it's just that they haven't gotten the model right. And and that's fair. And that's why there's different companies and there's upgrades to products. And um, I think the technology is better today than it's ever been. I mean, obviously, they wouldn't try to move backwards. Uh, people really like Fractal. You know, um, people really like Line 6. Um I think they're at a point where they're very convincing, but that's modeling. And that's somebody put saying, here's a Vox AC30. Here's, here's a deluxe memory man. Here's a Marshall. Here's whatever. Now though, with those units, what's very popular is impulse responses. I think the easiest way to understand impulse responses, and we touched on uh, like analog pedals that simulate amplifiers. Amplifiers are just amplifying signal and they're just putting an EQ curve on it. You know, um, a Vox AC30 has a lot of this chimey top end sometimes. And where does that come from? The blue speaker inside or the amp, both. All of these components impart an EQ. Those analog units or um, those analog units are really just doing that. And there's even a fun thing online where someone just used something like 30 EQ blocks and dialed them all in. 
and made it sound kind of like an amplifier on a helix. They just used like so many of these like five band compressors. No emulation or anything. Strictly no. using yeah, yeah. EQs. Now it doesn't feel very good. You know, it doesn't quite get all the way there. But it demonstrates how much it, of a sound is yeah, just EQ. It's just EQ. And so much of it is just EQ. And that's EQ is really the difference between a lot of these amplifiers that we hear, right? Tweeds are notorious for not having deep low end. They instead have a lot of this like lower mid-range around the 600, 700, I'm sorry, around the th like three to 600K range, which is sort of like high bass, low mids. And that gives them that grunty sound. You get even more of that when you go to smaller amps. You don't hear that low, low bass. Then you go to big 412s and you get that really chugga chugga thing. That's why you never see metal music played on like 112 little small amplifiers because they like that tight, deep bass. But you'll see someone like Joe Bonamassa say um, a 5E3 Deluxe, which is a small... 112. It was Fender's first deluxe amp, and it's a little tweed 112 amplifier. He'll say this is amazing, and this, but it's because he's playing it with a Les Paul. It's giving him a lot of mid range. It's perfect for his lead type of blues playing. He right. wants to sit on top of drums and bass, so he's not trying to get down there and compete with the bass player. Dumbles and two rock amplifiers are sort of notorious for having this high extended high end presence. Uh, Robin Ford famously kind of uses them. You'll hear on Larry Carlton and Robin Ford records, this sort of 3D swirling high-end quality. That's a combination of those amps actually putting out higher frequencies than like their Fender counterparts and them being captured with like a, a Royer 121 microphone, which, microphone, which has like an extended high-end range and... They're using usually something like an, an EV, an electro voice type speaker, which those speakers have higher um, frequency responses. They get into higher presence frequencies more than something traditional like you would find in a Marshall, like a Greenback, um, which sh sort of shelves that top end a bit. Uh, Celestian Blue, same way, sort of shelves some of that top end. They're bright, but they don't actually extend high, high into the presence range like some of those larger speakers with bigger magnets. All of those things, all of those components I'm describing are having an EQ change as it goes through the signal chain. And so capturing something like an IR, which uh, uh, it, stands for impulse, impulse response. response, what you do is you, you shoot a test signal through a signal chain. And then it spits out that test signal the other, the, on the other side. And you use a computer to look at the input and the output, and you see how it's been changed. And all that impulse response does is give you a very wide EQ curve. So normally when we would pull up an EQ on, on like, um, uh, like say a Boss GE7, that's Boss's EQ pedal. There's seven bands of EQ. But when you shoot an IR and you have all of these... And IR being an impulse response that emulates a speaker and a microphone and maybe a preamp. When you shoot something like that, you're actually getting an EQ that doesn't have seven points. It could have a thousand or two thousand. And actually, that's just far, yeah, far more complex. Yeah. And actually, there's a um, there's a a, a sort of um, there's a number after IRs, and it's really the um, the sample rate. It's telling you how many points are on there. So it could be 44,000, 96,000 different data points. And so what you're getting when you, when you create a digital version of that speaker is an EQ curve that's infinitely more complicated than you or I could sit there and dial in. Mm -hmm. Even the best human is not going to be able to do it. And what that's emulating is how 
engineers and producers have been putting together these different pieces of gear, you know, a vintage speaker with this amplifier and a vintage microphone and how each of them had something that, that the engineer liked. And even if they couldn't describe it or know exactly what frequency, just the way it rolled off the high end, the way it accentuated mid-range, each of them had an effect. And what they got at the end was this very complex EQ curve from putting out, putting all of these digital, I'm sorry, these vintage units, vintage pieces of gear together. That's sort of what an IR does and, and, and an advantage of, uh, of digital emulation. So IRs just capture speakers. A lot of time, and that's what you see in two-note torpedo things or load boxes. Maybe some of the listeners are familiar with the UA um, amp top box, uh, the aux amp top box. These are devices where you want to use your amp, but yeah. you can't turn up. It's mm -hmm. too loud. Um, either you're in a live situation where you need to control noise or you know, you're trying to practice it or record at home while, you know, the kids are asleep and you want to wake them up. So you unplug the speaker yeah. from the amp and you plug the, the amplifier instead of into its own speaker, if it's a combo amp mm -hmm. or, or into a cabinet, if it's an amp head, you plug it into one of these, um, load boxes, load boxes or something. It absorbs mm -hmm. that powered signal mm -hmm. from the amp. That's got to go somewhere. Yeah. It's like an attenuator with a speaker mm -hmm. simulator attached to it. It's and really then famous. it is going to simulate the sound um, of the speaker, and mm -hmm. then you come out of it with a cable directly yeah. into so tube uh, amp, a recording device. Yeah, tube amp into simulated speaker. And so the guys at Kemper kind of took... Now, that technology originally was not for guitar players. It was actually developed to capture reverbs because they wanted to capture the actual reverb of like Carnegie Hall or... Um, or, you know, like a famous church or something, right? So to do that, they developed this technology to do that. And then guitar players or somebody realized if we took that and shortened it down really short, like the 200 milliseconds, it's just an EQ. If we shorten it, it will actually cap it. You can, you can get to what a speaker sounds like because it's just an EQ. So the Kemper tries to take that same approach, but apply it to everything. So the Kemper allows you to plug in a guitar, um, I'm sorry, a guitar amplifier, a speaker cabinet, microphones, preamps, and then it captures the entire signal. It sends in a lot of these sort of pulsing sounds and these test signals, and then it spits something out. Then it lets you play your guitar through it, and it listens to your guitar and listens to the sound coming out and further sort of refines the emulation of that signal chain. So where IRs were developed a long time ago to capture reverbs of real live spaces, they were then adapted to capture guitar speakers. The Kemper profiler sets out to um, capture entire signal chains. And so we see people using it with obviously electric guitar amps, um, bass amps. We see people capturing just preamps or um, acoustic guitar preamplifiers. Put overdrives in front of the amp. Yeah, you could put overdrives let, in front. Let me just explain because um, I get emails about this, um, and I know a lot of a, a lot of this talk might be going over a lot of my listeners' heads. So, um, just it, to clarify, so if they weren't convinced, I was a tone junkie. Right? Yeah, <laughs> after, after the last thirty minutes of rambling. Right? Um, so just to, just to clarify, when uh, how do these amp sounds get into this? 
you know, piece of hardware that's called the um, the Kemper Profiling Amplifier. You have to start with the actual amp. So if you're pulling up a profile of, you know, a Marshall Plexi or a Fender Twin or whatever, you have to have that amp, a good version of that amp. You're in a studio or you're in a room and you're turning up the amp, you're plugging your guitar uh, into it, you're... Um, You've got mics on it. You've got good microphones that are the same sort of microphones that, you know, professional recording studios would use and did use in the past to create these iconic albums that we love so much. Then it's going into preamps, mm -hmm. the microphones, into a mixing board. There could be other post-production. And once you get everything set up, like you're ready to track, you know, your record with these glorious tones and have these, um, uh, these produced, polished, glorious tones you actually stick the Kemper into the signal chain. It sends out these um, these sounds and these signals mm -hmm. that goes into the amp. You know, it, sound, uh, it sounds like, um, you know, like a UFO's landing or yeah, something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, it does. Um, so it sends all of these uh, signals and sounds um, into the amp, and it goes through the whole signal chain. It comes back to the Kemper at the very end, mm -hmm. and the Kemper is... Uh, analyzing that and takes like a digital picture like so to speak yeah yeah uh, of that and then once that's captured turn the amp off plug directly into the kemper and voila you mm -hmm. have that same sound and it is uncanny and as we discussed yeah. earlier it's indistinguishable yeah and then from it has the real thing if it's if it's profiled uh correctly yeah and then it has you know it, you know the kemper has its own uh delays and reverbs and effects that you can add on if you want to you know yeah so really you get can, the cold you the can get thing. in there and say okay this is a great amp sound but i want i want to add some uh a different type of reverb mm -hmm. or delay yeah spring I wanna, plate whatever. i want you know, some effects don't come before the amp signal, but I heard that Eric Johnson actually used mm -hmm. post reverb, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. was a big part of his, of his sound and gave it that depth, um, without darkening, um, having a dark reverb. So I'm going to put my reverb post amp. So you, mm -hmm. it's, it's like in the Kemper, you have the ability to put things in the order that they would be, that would be done in mm -hmm. a professional studio. So you don't just sound like someone who's got a combo app on stage with an SM57 mic in front of it. Mm -hmm. And you're putting all your effects through the, um, uh, uh, through the amplifier and mm -hmm. the speaker, you know, a, a lot of the effects, a lot of what makes guitars that have effects sound so glorious is the fact that the effects did not go through the amplifier. Right. They captured the raw, pure tube tone. Yeah. And a lot of those effects were added later, and it just gives it such a such a, a bigger, clearer sound. I think a lot of times we forget that in the 1960s um, and even into yeah, – largely into the 70s – the the music sounds the way it does because musicians were not uh th there was not a lot of options um in terms of um the availability of gear to sort of expand your sound too much um hendrix used a wah and a fuzz a dallas arbiter you know fuzz face pedal um and that's about it. I mean, I, I'm, I, he, at one point I know had a, um, I know he experimented with an electroharmonics LPB one, which is just a, it's called a linear power booster. It's just a boost in line, but those were the only effects around, you know, it's not like, um, things were, and it's not like things were widely available for the guitar market. And that also goes for delays and reverbs. 
if you wanted to um if you wanted to have reverb live it basically had to be spring reverb built into your amp and so marshall's didn't offer that and so if you wanted a rock sound well there wasn't verb so what later started happening was um they would mic up and they would add in audience mics um you know, uh, is it Zeppelin that has the Royal Albert Hall uh, 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 record, the live record they did at a uh, song remains the same. Uh, they did a concert. Zeppelin did a live concert, I believe, at Royal Albert Hall, uh, maybe in the seventies. And the verb on that record is just audience mics. You know, it's just mics further back. And you know, you get. It wasn't until the eighties that you get people taking control. And you get guys like Tim Pierce, who in the studios were going, hey, I'm not going to send you the direct guitar signal because I just got this rack unit that has reverb and it's like a studio rack unit. So I'm actually going to mic my guitar amp. Then I'm going to run it through some effects. Then I'll send it to this to the studio, to the engineer in the next room. And they started taking control that way. And that was studio guys in the 80s. And that was Eric Johnson too, you know, experimenting with stuff like that. Because for the first time, all of a sudden we had rat gear available. It was smaller. It wasn't a big, it wasn't a big, um, you know, uh, tape sort of machine that you needed to get these delay sounds. Um, and once you had it available, you also didn't have the the problem of, well, if I do it on the record, I have to do it live. See, I'm convinced like, a lot of these guys knew like playing live was such an important part of getting out there and getting your music out that there might be cool studio tricks you can do, but how are you going to do it live? You know, like the Beatles never toured the white album <laughs> and how could they, right? There's a group in New York who does the white album. They have like 13 people who can recreate all the sounds on there. It's like Jimmy Vivino from the Conan O'Brien's band and stuff. And it's all these like studio guys in New York. It's like 13 of them and they like meticulously get every sound from the white album, but it takes that many people. So, and a lot of gear, a, a lot, lot of gear, pieces of gear. What's interesting. And I think we, we don't talk about enough is digital allows you to do things that would be nearly impossible in a purely analog world. And that's why you see delay pedals have gotten completely digital because Eric Johnson was running around with an EP two, I believe several of them, right? He would run one into a twin and one into his plexi and he would have, and that EP two is a tape machine, uh, for the delay. Echoplex. The Echoplex two. Yeah. And so it has a tube preamp and they sound great, but you got to maintain that on the road. You got to take it with you. If you got the money, it, it would be really nice. It's like traveling with an old fashioned reel to reel. It is a, like yes. a reel to reel tape player. <laughs> it is a reel to reel. Yeah. It's delicate. And, and yeah. Yeah. And if you're the edge, and you've got a full-time guy and all he does is maintain your setup. You can bring six amps with all this elaborate switching and you can bring, and you can have backups to your Echoplexes and backups to your amps and backs all this stuff, but it's getting harder and harder to do that even at the top levels. So now what people are doing is going, we're going to use this modeling unit and we're going to bring a backup. And if that one fails, we'll just bring out the other one. And it's got and all the settings. Many, and in many cases, the modeling unit it is 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 recreating those sounds perfectly. Yeah. So why why go why go through all the trouble? You know. Yeah. I mean. I, I mean. Even actually, even Eric Johnson. You mm -hmm. know, um, his setup doesn't really change too much. But every now and then he'll say, "Well, I'm just using this 
and he'll, he'll, he'll have a, an ordinary delay pedal instead of right, the Echoplex right. just right. because, you know, he says, well, for this tour, I just, we didn't want to bring him out. It's too yeah, difficult it, or something. It could be 16 dates to America or, or, or to the UK and he's got to, you know, then he's got to worry about there's 220 power. I got to get different amps, you know, um, Stu G, that's something, Stu G from the band Delirious, and now he plays with Michael W. Smith. Um, that's something he tells me all the time was always a big problem. When in his Delirious days, that band was big and doing arenas and stuff and touring. Um, he, they had two sets of amps, one here in the States and one over there because, and they had to get double of every amp. So, and he had to have them converted and just waiting there because it was too expensive to ship it all the way across and then have it converted. So they had Amer they had North American amps and you know, EU amps. And that was it. And then they would bring the effects back and forth and the guitars back and forth. But that's how they had to get around those problems. You know, to do that today is just very expensive. And the way touring has gone, you don't always do 50 dates, you know, in six months. A lot of it's now is we're going to do 10 dates and come back home. We're going to do five dates and come back home. I know a lot of guys here in Nashville and their, their reality is, I don't want to be on the road forever. I want to get back and see my family. Uh, and really the only way they're going to make money is to go and play every night for 10 nights and then come back home for two weeks, go out and do it again, go out and do it again because the demand isn't always there for 50 shows back to back to back to back to back, you know, and you got to pay someone a salary to maintain all your gear and that's expensive, you know, and that's mm -hmm. just, it's just the economics of today. That's why you're seeing the push to digital and because people are also demanding ease of use. I mean, we're the, this is the iPhone, you know, uh, era, you know what I'm saying? It, it's it, people want things now. Are there, and any, easy. are there any digital cell phone holdout people out there that are just saying, <laughs> man, if you're not, you know, talking through an old, you know, handheld no, dial, of course. dial thing with the, with the telephone cable cord, you're not really talking on the phone. I think the I think the difference there is that people believe that digital doesn't capture what tubes do. And I think they think it's some sort of like synthetic fake version mm -hmm. of it. Or it's gonna, and I, it certainly started that way. But like yes, like yes. everything else now the technology is just um and, and I'll just say this because we put up demos and I would just challenge anyone. The Tone Junkie YouTube channel has a collection of guitar tones that range from uber clean jazz to Hendrix to dirty blues to Stevie Ray Vaughan to hard rock to classic rock. Worship. There's metal stuff, metal. worship stuff. I think it's one of, I think it's, I think all of those demos sound great. Whenever someone leaves a comment that says sounds digital, I always think to myself, how could anyone make that claim listening to a YouTube video that's been compressed by YouTube algorithm? They're probably listening on a phone or laptop speakers, or maybe they do have studio monitors, but they're listening to packets of data that have been unpacked to give them a streaming video. And by the way, sound quality goes down when video quality goes down when you're streaming. So if you want the best sound quality to hear a demo, tell your YouTube player, go up to 1080 or go to 4k. Cause when you go down below 720, you're listening to more compressed audio. High def audio comes with high def. You know, I so, think a lot of people who comment and says, "Oh, it sounds it sounds synthetic or whatever," they they might say. Uh, honestly, 
I don't think they know what they're talking about. No, I agree. I think I, that I, they're <laughs> just, they just can't get past the fact that they're listening to a piece of gear that's digital, mm-hmm. and so they just uh, they're just unwilling to accept it. You know, yeah. like when you put people, even professionals, Rob Chapman, you know, in a room, and you know, you A B'd it, he couldn't tell the difference. And you look, know? you know, John Mayer has a Kemper, and he uses one now. John has the ability to bring Dumbles on the road and have a tech full-time that handles all his stuff. So he brings the real thing. But he warms up with a Kemper backstage. And I've seen him, pictures of him, uh, he was doing a podcast or something, brought a Kemper along for that little gig. Uh, brought a Kemper along um, for another, for when he was, I think he was sitting in on like a Taylor Swift record or something. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know or maybe I'm just thinking that because the rumors about them or something, but some big pop star, you know, he brings that along. He even had an article about how in that world of being featured on someone's record, you can't bring your big, huge thing. It's he, I believe in the article said it was disrespectful to like come in. I mean, imagine someone goes, Hey, can you come play a solo on this record? It's not the eighties. It's not, you know, Michael Jackson saying Eddie Van Halen, come play the guitar on thriller, you know? It's now like, you know, yeah, I want, yeah, of course I'll come by. You can't bring 30 pieces of gear and stop all of the production. Like these people are paying a lot of money for this, right? So uh, yeah, I'm going to bring something. I'm going to play a solo on a song that, you know, uh, I got to interrupt here. Yeah. I still get a kick out of someone has an old, uh, TV in their basement (laughs) You know, you know what I'm talking <laughs> yes, about? Yes. The yes. old big, yeah. you know, the uh, tube TV, tube, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. square TVs. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and when I say old, I mean like, you know, maybe it's tw- it's 15 or 20 years old. Something Probably like older that, than that. Right. 20, 20, 25, You know, before yeah. we went to all the flat screens. Yep. Yep. yep right. Yep, yep, yep. And in some cases they're trying to sell it. The thing weighs 300 pounds <laughs> yes, and they're yes. like, you know, it's still in good shape. <laughs> And, uh, uh, you know, I'm willing to, you know, take 50 bucks for yeah. it. And I'm thinking <laughs> you couldn't pay someone yeah, exactly 150 bucks right. to haul that away. Right. You can't even give those TVs away. Right. You know, right. they're so heavy. They're so bulky. They're so heavy. Yeah. And the, the point is, is like, we live in a day and an age where, you know, nobody's going to buy that TV. And even if you gave it to them, even if yeah. I just showed up your doorstep and said, I want to give you a gift and I, you know, I'm going to yeah, need but, five yeah. guys to help me carry it yeah. in here. You're like, dude, we don't, we don't do that anymore. We have yeah. flat screen TVs. Yeah. And so the same is kind of true with amps. If you show up with a hundred watt Marshall to someone's house and you say, Hey, you wanted me to track a guitar solo for you. I brought my hundred watt Marshall. It sounds so good when I dime it. Mm-hmm. They're going to look at you like, dude, we don't, we don't do that anymore. And why we can have this done in 10 minutes if you had a Kemper and it would sound just as good. I will tell you the dirty little secret of Nashville is that right now, the way music production works, when you go to a producer, let's say you live in Boise, Idaho, and you go to the best music producer in Boise, right? He, maybe there's two really good guys in in the whole Boise market. Cause there's probably not a lot of big music coming out of Boise, right? Yeah, Boise. That's a real rock and roll town. <laughs> well, you know, Someone's listening in Boise, Idaho yeah, right now. Like, hey, like, come right? on, man. Don't knock but, out my But if, you, if you're I'm an sure. artist, right? Oh, that's why so many artists go to Nashville and go to Los Angeles. There's a huge market for people who travel in, stay for 
weeks at a time and do a record with a producer. And the producer brings in the players or they get it done. But a lot of stuff gets done remotely. And especially if you go to other places, there's not going to be a bunch of studio musicians available in Boise or even in, even in larger markets, Cincinnati, you know, you're not, there's, there's a pool, but you know, I saw, I knew guys who were professional full-time musicians in San Francisco and I watched that pool get down to almost nothing. And because with the competition from the internet, I can send you my tracks and you can record the guitars in your studio at home. So all these big name guys, whether it's in the worship ministry world, in the worship music world, in the rock world, in whatever, if you want Misha Mansoor to play, who's like a metal guitar player to play on your, you know, new metal record, you can get that done. It doesn't sound like a metal name. What is that again? Misha Mansoor. Not familiar with he, her, him, 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 him. He, uh, he, he, he created a pedal that's, uh, and a, and a line of guitars. That's, uh, he, he's one of the modern kind of metal guitar heroes. Yeah. I'd say for sure. Um, he, um, he needs a tougher name. <laughs> doesn't he? Yeah. How about, to, uh, Tosin Abasi? He's a really, he plays like a nine string guitar. Mm. Very, very interesting music, but you can get those guys to play on your record, but you got to send them the tracks. They will play and they'll charge you something because they got a studio set up. And now with the internet, we can do it. And and you can plop the whole track in Pro Tools and he can record the guitars and give you six guitar parts. And then the studio engineer can get them back, EQ them, pick what he likes. And so... I'll tell you the the secret in Nashville right now is I know numerous guitar players who, when you send them that stuff, they are in their home studio. They are not setting up all their huge amps that they use on tour and they take on the road that you might see they in got photos. They wife and kids. They, yeah. And they're yeah. working at 8, 8 p.m. at night. They put the kids to bed and they go downstairs. And they they do... live in a subdivision. They're surrounded by other homes. I know people might not believe it, but I'm, I'm, we're, I'm, you and me know it's true. The guys who have the very top gigs in Nashville just have houses that have, maybe they have an extra bedroom. They live in my neighborhood. They, yes, they live in mine too. I mean, <laughs> you know? they go, yeah, and they just go Went into over to their... my neighbor's house. True story. This yeah. is shortly after I moved here and, uh, you know, uh, daughter's making friends with some neighbors. Oh, yeah, come on in. You know, we got girls we can play. And um, he's got a music room. He's got like a, a first floor um, master bedroom that's mm-hmm. been converted into a mixing uh you know, studio. Yeah, yeah. And he's got Grammys. Yes. Sitting I've on been his in... mixing studio right there, uh-huh. tucked away in this little Tennessee subdivision, you know, along with. <laughs> I've been in those rooms, Desi, where you walk in and there's platinum records on the wall mm-hmm. and you're, and you see these enormous names. Uh, and then I've been in some places that are absolute just man caves with motorcycles inside and like swords and suits of armor on the wall and a giant mixing desk in the middle and Grammys lined up all. I was like, what is this place? It's like, it's everything this dude loves, right? In a <laughs> barn, just like right there, you know? Um, but I know a lot of people who you send them the tracks, they plug in their Kemper or they plug in their amp into a two notes torpedo cap and they... And they do their stuff right there silently and you get the tracks back and they sound awesome. Yep. And, and, and I'll tell you the other thing. Um, I talked to Joey Landreth at NAMM. If people don't know Joey Landreth, he's a great, great, fantastic guitar player. I have been listening to his recent album called Hindsight and I've been wanting to share this with my 
my people. Um, I love this guy, man. Great guitar tones, really cool, great mm-hmm. songwriter. Check out the album Hindsight by Joey Landreth. I think it's awesome. He's He is um, one of the great guitar heroes, I think, of this day. And um, he'll probably, you know, I, he'll never get to John Mayer level. You know, he's a guitar player's guitar player. Mm-hmm. But um, if you love Joe Bonamassa, if you love Ariel uh, Posen, if you love um, uh, just any of those guys, um, Johnny Lang, you know, you'll you'll like. Are you going to tell me he's using a Kemper, Joey Landreth? No, but I'll tell you what he is using. He, he, he famously uses two rock amps and he talks about two rock amps mm-hmm. a lot. But um, super nice guy. I'm sitting at NAMM waiting for my uh, Uber outside. And... He walks by and I pointed at him and he was on the phone and I was, was this, wait, was this Nashville Nam? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He's walking around and I pointed at him and I go, oh. and he sees me, he's on the phone, but he stopped and he was getting off his call and he stopped and he said, Hey man. And I said, Hey, you're Joey Landreth, you know? And, um, I said, I'm just waiting for my Uber. And he said, me too. Mind if I wait with you? So he sits down at my table, super nice guy. And we have this conversation and he says, what do you do? So I give him the, the 10, the 20 second elevator pitch of what I do. You know, I make Kemper profiles. I make Helix stuff. I make IRs. And he tells me, he says, yeah, you know, I use two rock stuff. Now I knew that. Um, but he says the sound guy makes the call for him, whether that venue is big enough to use the cab and mic it up or whether they use a two notes torpedo cab and run his amp through an IR simulation because his, a simulation of the speakers, he's using the real amp, right? And then he, and he told me, he said, Hey, through my in-ears, some nights I think it sounds better. Mm-hmm. And that's the truth. And, and he's letting the sound guy take the lead and look at the room because sometimes it's a, it's an intimate 150 seat theater and it's an evening with Joey Landreth. And then other times it's a, it's a 1500 seat theater or a 2000 seat theater. And, you know, um, he's playing with other people and stuff. And maybe there we're going to set up the cab and have stage noise, but in the smaller venues, the, cat, the the amp is just going to be too loud for a small club, and and that's the reality. It, it's not that he's he's not playing stadiums. You know, he's not making the kind of music that's going to get him into you know the O2 Arena in London. But he's playing House of Blues. He's playing uh, the Fillmore and these places. And the sound, and even if he was playing stadiums. Mm-hmm. Still, the technology can make it easier, and you can yeah. more consistently get. A, a, you can yeah. keep your sound consistent, even even when you're in venues like a large studio where you do have the opportunity to take a large hundred watt amp and crank it up. There's still reasons why the technology makes it easier, more consistent, and you might still choose to use it, or you mix it. You mm-hmm. say, "Well, I'll use a real amp. I'll use an amp simulator or something like that." You know, something else people may not realize. The amplifier designs that we are all trying to emulate were not designed for the purpose we use them for. They were designed as PA speakers for the instrument. So when when Leo Fender designed the 5E3, we didn't there weren't PA systems you could buy for portable gigs and stuff. There weren't um there there were certainly speakers in in venues, but there was no portable stuff. And so there was often a lot of music venues that didn't have a PA. You could think of a they bar. They weren't miking outside. their amps and they putting it through the PA. They, they the were meant to... was the PA for the guitar. Exactly. It was meant to supplement an existing system or no system at all. Maybe they would, they would pull the guitars and put them at the back of the stage and the singer would just get up there and sing. Or a lot of times the only thing in the PA, this, this was really how sound was done. The only thing in the PA would be the vocals. 
There was vocals with a microphone. And that even came out of um, the the folk sort of uh, genre or the bluegrass genre of let's all stand around one microphone. And when it's your turn to do a solo, you step forward. I still see music done that way in Nashville. They'll, they'll have a bluegrass band around a single microphone and then the fiddle comes forward, plays his solo. And then, and they're mixing the instruments by physically moving their body. And there might be a singer up front with a second microphone. Leo Fender designed the Fender Bassman, the 59 Tweed Bassman as a bass amplifier. It's like for like a PA, not yeah, to be mic. Exactly. Like this is going to, we designed this so the, the sound will carry mm-hmm. through the entire venue and even mm-hmm. people in the back row are going to be able to hear. And you can go look on, on uh, there's old uh, episodes of like Howdy Doody and they're out there and the bass is in there and it's not in the system at all. It doesn't even come through the, the, produ- the, the actual production audio that goes out on television. It's just in the room. And he, I mean, that's what it was for. Nowadays, we have PAs. So it's like everything goes through the PA. It sounds much better out front because mm-hmm. you get a nice mix of all the instruments through through the uh, PA. And so the amp, amps on stage are usually just for the signal to go to the mm-hmm. PA. Um, and then sometimes it might be so you can monitor, your, monitor yourself on stage. You can hear a little bit. If you're the guitar player, you can hear a little bit of your, of your yeah. amp. But in many cases, like if you're using in-ears... You don't even need that. No, you don't. It, you know, the, the famous story of how the, the JTM 45 or the Bluesbreaker combo really came about was from Eric Clapton. Um, the Bluesbreaker combo, really. Um, the JTM 45 was Jim Marshall, who, who Marshall amplifiers. There's also a famous Jim Marshall, who's a photographer. Uh, but Jim Marshall t- looked at the 59 Baseman, took it back to the UK, to, to England, and he used the equivalent tubes they had over there. And then they start, he, he modified the circuit a bit. And he created the, his first amp, which was the JTM45. He, he replaced the 6L6 tubes that Leo Fender had used with KT66s. He gave it a different sound. He made some changes. But, um, but there you go. That's why those amps are similar in their topography. Well, Clapton started using that. He later, Jim Marshall later came out with the Plexi. And Clapton is playing cream in cream and even in cream the full stacks they were using him and ginger baker were using these full stacks and that sound was what was being thrown out to the the audience so even there even in the in the age of cream and in the 60s they were supplementing what the guitar what the audience was hearing with huge stacks on the stage they also did it because um you know this is famous this is why ingve malmsteen would have speakers everywhere. He didn't, he wanted to run around the stage and, and have the sound be the consistent everywhere. Well, if you want the sound completely consistent, you have to build a wall of amplifiers because he didn't want to step away from his amp and hear anything different. But Eric Clapton, even when he was out of cream and he was about to do, he was about to join John Mayall and the blues breakers. He famously went to Jim Marshall and said, I need an amplifier that fits in the boot of my car. Because his situation had changed. He was the no boot? longer the boot of my car. That's, that, that's what they call trunk. That's what they call trunk yeah. over there. So all the uh, English uh, <laughs> listeners are like, yeah, of course. the boot. <laughs> but because Silly he, American. He had left Cream. Cream was done, or they weren't going to play anymore, at least for a while. And they were, so he was out of studio. He was out of, um, he was out of uh, st- uh, big uh, like stadiums. 
And he was now on the way. He needed to go to the studio. And I, I don't know if he was playing small clubs or what, but he said it needs to fit in the boot of my car. So Jim Marshall makes him what later became the blues breaker combo because he took that amp. He went to the studio. Eric was so used to turning his Marshall on 10 from playing in cream that he, he, he had to have the amp on 10. They said, it's too loud. He said, who cares? <laughs> right? So he just cranked it and they just put the mics in the room. But the point is he went to a smaller amplifier when it dictated. So when he needed to put it in his car and he was used to running it on 10 because that's what he had been doing. So he liked that sound. And later that record became uh, John Mayall and the blues breakers and it became known as the blues breaker amp. And that's where is it gets that, that hideaway name. on it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, that amp is named after that record, you know, sort of affectionately it's that, that became people noticed the blues breaker, but it's, it's actually, isn't it a 1974 X combo or, or it might just be called the JTM 45 combo, but they call it the blues breaker because he made it famous on that amp. So I think it's important to note that like, sometimes we can be, we can put up our noses at new technology and I would just sometimes suggest to people that the greats that were emulating didn't have that opinion. They were willing to use whatever gear was available. You know, Stevie Ray Vaughan didn't think twice about putting a 40 cent, you know, transistor chip in front of his beautiful dumbbells or his Vibrolux amps. A, a tube screamer. A tube screamer I'm is a about, 40 cent. He, well, I mean, yeah, those parts, the J, the JRC uh, a chip. Now they're, the original ones come from Japan and now they go for more money. They were cheap. You know, it's funny. Like some people are anti uh, overdrive or distortion pedal. They're like, oh, no, you never do. You've got mm-hmm. to get the real overdrive and distortion from the amp. That's always better. That's always mm-hmm. better. But look at the popularity of the Tube Screamer. Like Stevie Ray Vaughan used a stop box for his overdrive, and no one is going to argue that he didn't sound but it's just amazing. A, it's just an EQ. I mean, it's not just an EQ, it's an overdrive, but it has an EQ curve that people like. And it's a boost. Yeah. It pushes that amp into breakup and it it sounds good. And it gives you the mid-range that the fenders are lacking. So it fits so well with a Strat and a Fender amp. Because there's not a lot of 500k throaty sort of sound like this. Hopefully people can hear that. I'm putting my, my hands over and this is that sort of hollow sound it gives you. It's that focus that you want for leads when you want to jump out 500 K that's what the fenders don't have a ton of. Um, and that's where the tube screamer just pushes that up and it gives you that nice tone. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. It's interesting. Cause I wonder if those guys were around today, I wonder what Hendrix would be using. I wonder what, what Steve Ray Vaughn would be using because we see guys like Pat Metheny who Pat Metheny, famous jazz guitar player, and kind of got into world music and stuff. So he likes different tonalities, but he, in the eighties, when wrote, when uh, boss came out with their synthesizer, didn't sound anything like the instruments it claimed. They said, look, now your guitar can sound like a saxophone. It does not sound like a saxophone, but Pat Metheny went, this is amazing. As a jazz guitar player. Like he heard potential there. He's like, yeah, you know, this is, you can treat this like its own thing. If and you, do something with it. One of the highest compliments you can give a jazz guitar player is tell them their phrasing is more like a saxophone than a guitar. They'll buy you lunch. Like they, they because they sit if there. they can with, afford it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> because they will sit there with a guitar and they will learn John Coltrane licks. And you know, the licks that you use, you just naturally gravitate towards on any instrument 
tend to lean towards whatever's easiest to play or whatever's most comfortable to play. So saxophone licks tend to be different than guitar licks. So if you want to sound like a saxophone, you get to study saxophone players and they always do that. So Pat Metheny thought, well, this is great. Now I can be a saxophone and a trumpet and a guitar player and all this stuff. But he was using the technology of the time. And what's funny is now he stayed with it. He got so used to that technology. He's still using like that original uh, boss synth. They don't even make it anymore. You know, it's super expensive, but he still uses it. Still uses it all the time. You know, I got a church analogy here. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, if anyone goes to church, uh, you're probably familiar with um, some people being opposed to playing modern Christian music because, you know, they grew up in a, you know, small country church and mm-hmm. they played these hymns that were hundreds of years old and liked, yeah. and, and and they think... Well, that's real church music. Right. If you're not playing the old hymns, uh-huh. you're not playing the... Re- we shouldn't be playing new music. Yeah. You got you? to play the old traditional <laughs> stuff or it's 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 her- heretical, isn't it? Uh-huh. You know, and I always say, well, but those hymns were brand new at one point. Yeah. Someone wrote those and brought them to the church and said, here's some, here's, here's some music. And my point is, is that in every era, people are using what's what was available and every every everything was new technology at one point you know you know what's fun some of those hymns also were popular bar songs and the and the words were rewritten and the reason they did that is so that when people went to church they would know the melody so they could look and they could read the song when i grew up in catholic church they taught us songs to the tune of teenage mutant ninja turtles because all the kids knew Teenage like the, Mutant Ninja Mutant, Turtles. Yeah. And so they would teach us. Yeah, we. Were, I mean, I was six or seven, you know, and, and, and I went to this Catholic school and they would bring us on Thursdays and we'd, we'd sing some songs and stuff. And the music teacher was a nun. So I don't know where she got those songs, but she would, we would sing, you know, kind of the, yeah, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. There were some other ones. I don't remember what they were, but they would just redo the words, you know, and that was how they did. Uh, some hymns are, uh, were originally bar tunes that people would know. And people knew the melody, so. Well, everything was new at one point. That's and true. Vintage gear was the new technology at one point, mm-hmm. and tubes were the new technology. Um, Saldano was at one point an amp. What is this new amp? Where's the Marshalls? You know. Mm-hmm. And then you had guys like Eddie Van Halen, right? Who are a good example of like, it's not enough. I want to push vintage more. So let's mm-hmm. hot rod the Marshall. Yeah. You know, it's it. it it's so interesting how we can sort of become anti-progress when the people that we're trying to emulate were all about pushing the boundaries. You know, Jimi Hendrix said that he had explored the tonal, I think that was the exact quote. He said something like, I have explored the tonal, like, like diversity or something of the guitar. He thought he had found all the sounds. And I think when he said that, he was probably right. He was using Leslie's and he was putting his guitar through keyboard speakers. You know what I mean? A Leslie is a keyboard. It's for an organ. Mm-hmm. Stevie Ray Vaughan did the same yeah, thing. A lot yeah. of guitar players since then have done it. And, and, and Hendrix was putting it through there because he thought, that's cool. I want to have that sound. I think because at some level he was a musician. You know what I mean? Like to us, he's a guitar player. But Hendrix was a musician. And so he was going to use whatever. He didn't mind that his guitar sounded like well, a he fuzz. Was a, he was an artist too. Yeah, yeah. So he was just he was thinking big picture. He was thinking about the final 
outcome of what he was creating, and mm-hmm. everything was just a tool. It was just, uh, it was just a yeah, j- just a brush. I'm sure the acid helped. Probably, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, let's we. We'll have to figure out how to wrap this up here. We could go on for for hours oh, and for hours, hours on end. But all this to say that um, the technology today is absolutely amazing, and you can use it to get the best of uh, digital sounds. You can also get it to uh, uh, reproduce the best of analog sounds, mm-hmm. tube sounds. I can get. I can finally. I, I I grew up and I'm a classic rock aholic. I love you know 50s, 60s, 70s, yeah, the 80s yeah. stuff. I love it. I love those those tones. I can finally uh, reproduce the sounds of the records that I grew up loving with uh, with the Kemper, mm-hmm. and I haven't been able to do that ever before. Even if I got the amp, even if I said I've got a Marshall or I've got this Fender amp that you know Steve Ray Vaughan used yeah. or. You can't turn you know, it up AC, like that. You know, ACDC I couldn't ever turn them up. No way anyone would let me take a 100-watt Marshall to a gig and, yeah. and turn it yeah. on 10. I can't do that at home. Yeah. Um, and even if I did, that's only, as we discussed earlier, that's only one part of the signal chain. There's more to it. But the Kemper allows you to have that whole sig- signal chain, and then you can, you can uh, monitor it with headphones and listen to it at a comfortable volume. Or you could plug it into a PA system, or maybe if you have like a full range frequency response, um, you know, amplifier or something. So you can use it in stadiums. You can use it in in the bedroom, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just it's uh, it's just absolutely amazing, and it, it, it I, enables me to do things that I would not normally be able to do unless I was playing giant venues and I had my own home recording studio with, you know, cinder block walls and stuff that I didn't have mm-hmm. to worry about. But I don't. And the and the yeah. reality is that 99% of the people listening to this podcast and we're playing guitar, you don't have that option no. either. Yeah. And one of the things that I've been preaching to um, uh, my, my students, because I'm a guitar teacher, is make, uh, make use of... Allow the t- technology to give you the freedom to play guitar in a way that you just can't play if you're using other gears. Because sometimes, you know, I'll connect with a student and uh, so they went out and they bought, you know, like a, a Fender Hot Rod Deluxe. Very popular amp. 40 yeah. watt amp. Yeah. Okay. Complete overkill for most guitar players. It's yeah. still too yeah. big and too loud to yeah. use at home unless you're going to turn it on one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, but if you really want to like crank that amp up and get the tubes cooking to to really produce its best tone, you can't do that. I used to have that amp. You can't mm-hmm. do that at home. You're going to blow your windows out, yep. you know. And and also um a lot of people, you know, maybe they can do that on the weekends or something or then maybe maybe they have a room where they can get a, get a little noisy. Yeah. But what I noticed is that many of my students weren't really playing or practicing much. It becomes a a, a deterrent from so, practicing. Right. A so challenge. I said I want you to go out and buy a $300 Yamaha THR mm-hmm. desktop amplifier. Yeah, those are nice. Those are cool. And get a p- good yeah. pair of good over the ear headphones. Mm-hmm. Plug your computer or your or your uh your cell phone into the into the uh, desktop amplifier because mm-hmm. it has an audio, it has an uh, aux in. Put the headphones on, and 
you know, Jam. you can play all day long when, you know, the family's sleeping in the house, you can still play if you can use its small built-in speakers or you can put the headphones on mm-hmm. and, you know, each time once I convinced someone to try something like that, they would come back and they'd say, Desi, I have played more in the past week than I've ever played in my life. You're absolutely <laughs> right. Because now it's just so easy mm-hmm. to plug in and uh, and play. And one one of the things I wanted to uh, – there's a couple of things I want to discuss before we wrap it up here. Yeah. And, and one is the Kemper, Kemper is awesome and amazing. But it's probably overkill for most people. Yeah. So if yeah. you're just if you're you know a hobbyist guitar player or you're still learning or you just want to kind of get your feet wet with um, uh, you know taking advantage of a digital uh, solution, um, just get a inexpensive guitar practice amp that's got a headphone input and a um, or headphone output and an aux audio input and start there. It's not going to sound as good as a Kemper. Not anywhere close, but it can still sound good. Makes it so easy to practice and play. Mm-hmm. And you made uh, that. That's 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 where you want to start. Agreed. You can go, you know, to the the Kemper units, the Fractal. You can you can go to Helix. Helix has a a more affordable uh, uh, LT version, which is a full Helix. They've just taken off some of the extra little uh, visual displays. Uh, so it's, so they're not putting 13 tiny little screens on the unit and that's, you know, I think brand new, those are eight or seven ninety nine. So used, you can get them lower. So if people well, want let me add that if you have a unit like that, it doesn't have any built-in speakers. That's true. So you you're gotta... going to have to plug it into something. Yeah, you could use headphones or you can get, you can go through into your, com- some computer monitors if you have those, um, you know, yeah, that is the challenge. Um, uh, they do make, uh, you know, FR, FR speakers. They call them full, flat range, full, frequent, full response, flat, full range, flat response. They're just PA speakers. You know, I, I have a couple different versions uh, that I put units through. E- yeah, it, it can be a little overkill. The other thing is, if you got a pedal board, just get some little, maybe an HX stomp at the end of your board for practicing silently. Or go get a Joyo amp sim. Those are like thirty dollar analog pedal. Or Tech Twenty One. Yeah, Tech Twenty One. It's it's enough to practice with. And here's what I would how I, I think if one thing I really want to get across is this. I think the question of and I see this question all the time. I'm not trying to convince anyone to buy a Kemper. Now, I, I people will often perceive that or the way I speak about it or a Helix or something. And, oh, this guy sells Kemper presets. He sells IRs. He, you know, he wants, he's, he says the tube amp's dying or something. I look at it like this. I love tube amps. And there has not been a day where I have not owned multiple tube amps and had way more invested in tube amps than my wife is aware. Right? Like, <laughs> right? so, but I look at it like this, instead of asking ourselves, should I sell my tube amp and buy a Kemper or a Helix or a Joyo or a whatever unit, I just look at it as like, should that be part of my guitar arsenal? Should I have a solution for traveling? You know, maybe I go two weeks to see my family back home in California. An HX stomp is about the size of a big delay pedal. Maybe I bring that along. Maybe I, um, maybe I need to go to a buddy's house and we're just going to jam. Maybe I don't bring my full tube amp. Maybe I got a gig at church or a small gig down there. 
maybe it's free or it's just it's just in a restaurant and maybe, they don't want big gear in a restaurant maybe your only chance to practice is either at night after everyone's gone to bed mm-hmm. um or early in the morning yeah. or something. Because I, I have a lot of students that will say, man, I'm up at like 5 a.m. Yeah. I play guitar for an hour yeah. before I go to work with headphones now, and it's great. And, you maybe, know? and maybe once a week or once every two weeks, uh, you know, the missus takes the kids out for swim lessons or ice cream, and you're alone in the house. And you crank up your AC30 or your AC50. Enjoy. You know what I mean? But yeah. for all the other times. Yeah. This is a really, it, they're really good solutions. So I just think it's, it's part of people's arsenal in the same way that having a delay pedal is part of it. I'd love to have a bunch of, you know, Benson echo rec units from the seventies and EP, you know, echo plexes. I'd love to have them all, but uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. how often would I use them? You know? Yeah. For me with what I do, it's like, I want people to play guitar mm-hmm. and I want them to enjoy it. So I want them to take advantage of any technology that, that enables them to play when they wouldn't normally be able to play mm-hmm. and enables to enables them to hear themselves in a way that they wouldn't normally be able to hear, hear themselves. Yeah. Like, um, you know, for example, students will say, well, you know, yeah, I pull up these songs and I try to try to play along, but you know, it's just difficult. And I, you know, my, I don't know, maybe it's my timing or something. And I, I get out of sync with the music and I say, turn your amp off, turn off whatever your, you know, your stereo or, or whatever, mm-hmm. go through kind of an all in one unit, like a practice amp that's got, you know, you can plug the music into that and put headphones in. Turn everything up so you can hear everything clearly in your headphones. Then you can hear the low end of the music. You can hear the kick drum and the bass. Mm-hmm. You can and you can hear your guitar in the mix, and that's just a it's just a much better experience. It's better for someone who's learning because now they can follow the music better. You know, you can. I mean, one of my favorite things to do when I have time to just jam, you know, which is usually after my kids have gone to sleep, mm-hmm. I pull up. Uh, Joe Bonamassa videos on YouTube because he's got these great live concerts, really high quality audio, you know, Anton yeah, Fig yeah, yeah. And, and all those, all those great players. And I crank it up uh, and it goes into my mixer and I plug my Kemper into the mixer and crank it up and I try to dial in a tone mm-hmm. that's similar. So I sound like I'm on stage mm-hmm. right in the mix mm-hmm. with the band. Yeah. And it's like, that is such a better playing experience than in the old days when I'd have a, Hot Rod Deluxe at one side of the room cranked mm-hmm. up. And the other side of the room, I'm cranking up my boombox as loud yeah. as I can to try to hear the music. Right, right. That sounds like garbage that's compared true. to what you can do today with the technology that's available. And if your end goal is you want to get better at playing guitar, you want to enjoy the experience, you want to have more opportunity to play, take advantage of the technology that makes that um that, that makes that possible. Kemper will probably be overkill for, for a mm-hmm. lot of people. You can yeah. get something that's much more inexpensive. It's not going to sound as good or give you as many options, but it still sounds good. Just mm-hmm. like you can buy a guitar for less than a thousand dollars. Yeah, for sure. That's made overseas. Mm-hmm. You don't have to buy a three, $4,000 PRS. Some of these, Big uh, time. Yeah. some of these inexpensive guitars are still good guitars. They sound good. There's you know? a guitar going around. I think it's called a Shij. Shij, S H I J E, and they're from China, and they're like seven hundred bucks. And people are saying they're sir quality. They've got roasted necks. Hmm. I'm trying to get them to send me one because um, I think the, I think with the Rever- ter- uh, Reverend guitars, Reverend sell yeah, for yeah, around a yeah. thousand. They all have yeah. roasted necks now. Oh wow, I didn't realize that. But the the um, some of my buddies on a different YouTube channel they're they're getting one 
from China. They're sending them. And um, I don't know. The reports I've heard have been people are going, you know, whoa, these things at 700 bucks are. It's funny, kind of in the same way that the digital technology is sounding so great. Um, a lot of these guitars that are now manufactured overseas mm-hmm. are, are wonderful. I'm a big fan of the PRS guitars, and they have their SC line that's manufactured overseas. And they oh, actually yeah. sent me some to demo, and I was just like, man, these things are so much better than than like you know the Chinese made instruments and stuff that I remember when I started playing yeah. in the 80s. They were junk. I had the the first the Santana SE, the first Santana SE model they put out, mm-hmm. and I thought since then. PRS SE line has been some of the best. It's gotten better guitars. and better. And even yeah. in this past year, yeah. they've taken another giant leap forward um, with some of the instruments uh, coming out of there. So, yeah. anyway, um, uh, th- you have a lot of options. So, you know, depending on what your budget is, take advantage to, you know, line six can sound excellent. Mm-hmm. It can. I don't think it measures up to the Kemper, but in a lot of situations, do you really need it to, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, particularly if you're just a hobbyist, you yeah. know, you know, um, you know, it's like a car. You don't have to go out and buy a $50,000 luxury car. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, you can spend $30,000 on a Honda Accord and it's a great car, Yeah, you yeah. know? So anyway, but if you do have the budget, um, if you're going to go out and spend a th- thousands of dollars on gear and buy boutique amplifiers right, right. and stomp box pedals and stuff. And um, you only live once, right? That's, what, that's and, what I tell myself. <laughs> but, you know, but you only, you're only really able to play through that stuff like once a week when everybody's out of the house, you mm-hmm. know, and you know your neighbors aren't home and they're not going to call the cops on you. Then you might want to think about mm, maybe I should invest in a Kemper because I can get all of these same sounds and I can play anytime I want. If I want to put it through a speaker and turn it up, I can. If I want to play silently with headphones, I can. And in particular, if you are a tone snob <laughs> um, and you have, you know, you're just, your ears are real particular, then I would say you need, you need to try the, the Kemper. Because um, I have had some people that say, I have the Line 6, but I can't stand it, you know. And, uh, you know, I thought about buying a Kemper, but I didn't want to waste more money on this digital stuff that I just don't, you know, don't like. Um, It's it's so easy to go, I tried a digital piece of gear, so I don't like digital. But we never do that with amplifiers, right? We never go like... Or guitars. Yeah, or guitars, right? I tried a bad guitar one time, so I gave up the instrument. Um, I mean, how ridiculous, right? right? (laughs) Well, on more than one occasion, I, I told people, well... You know, yeah, you know, the, the Helix can sound good, but it sounds like maybe, you know, um, not good enough to your ears or something. I, I certainly would try the Kemper, you know, and on more than one occasion, a couple of weeks later, a month later, people emailed me back and said, OMG, <laughs> you were, I played through the Kemper and it was just, I mean. Uh, the Kemper feels like an amp in a way that changer. most things don't. That is the real thing to me. I find a lot of people don't like digital data. It doesn't quite feel right to them. Maybe it feels a little stiff or it doesn't quite, mm-hmm. the notes don't decay quite the right. same. Yes. Honestly, when I hear them in a mix, I just go, that sounds great. What is that? And I'll go a Helix. You know, you can't tell the difference from an amp or a Kemper. But for the player, feel can be important. Right. You know, and um, to me, uh, in the digital world, the Kemper has nailed what it feels like to play a tube amp. Absolutely. Um, I just started using a Kemper. It was just a couple of years ago. And I I mean, it came out in 2011. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, I'm not spending that money mm-hmm. on another device. You know, I had some Line 6 stuff. I had some Tech 21 stuff. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just, I'm not going to fork out 
that kind of money for some fancy schmancy latest greatest you know digital stuff i have digital stuff and i was kind of dissatisfied with it at the time and i mm-hmm. so i bought uh, an iso cab yeah, instead yeah. and i was trying to run amps and amp heads through an iso cab and mic it up and control some of the noise in, in the house and uh long story short people kept saying dude what <sighs> just get a kemper dude get a kemper for crying <laughs> right, right, and right. they would send me some audio samples and i'd be like wow like that's you playing like through the Kemper. They're like, yeah. So I finally got a Kemper yeah. plugged into it. And I was just like, I couldn't believe I had wasted all that time <laughs> since it, I mean, it came out in 2011 and I don't think I actually bought one until, I don't know, maybe two or three years ago or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was just like, what a colossal waste of time that was. Why didn't I just get a Kemper? I, I kept trying to, <laughs> to get that quality of sound with, with some cheaper, yeah. um, uh, alternatives yeah. or trying to use an ISO cab. And so anyway, I ended up selling off most of my gear. I kept a small little amp and some pedals, but I got rid of the ISO cab. I got rid of other amps because I just don't, uh, I just, I just don't, don't need it. You know, one we didn't mention, and it's a perfect solution for people. The Strymon Iridium can go right at the end of your pedal board. It has a headphone jack and it's got everything built in. It's got three sounds, Fender Deluxe, Vox AC30, Marshall Plexi, straightforward. You know, you get a choice of a couple different cabs, but they got IRs loaded in there already. You don't even mm-hmm. have to change them out. Yep. It sounds good. You know, pop something right at the end of your board. That's a, that's another one I think is, uh, it's it's still a bit expensive. You know, I think it's $400 or something. It's definitely yep. cheaper stuff, but it's a, it's a good unit. Hey, we got to wrap this up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do want to talk about uh, Tone Junkie. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, just, just to clarify, people are a little confused. So what HW here does is he is profiling amplifiers. Okay. Well, I'm so profiling the world. He's profiling the world. <laughs> that's his, that's his motto. That's the mission. Um, so he is always acquiring the amps, uh, these amps, you know, uh, some of the best yeah. amps that are on the market. And, um, he is, uh, miking them up and getting studio quality sounds. And then mm-hmm. he captures them, uh, in his Kemper and then he will sell those profiles. That's what they're called. So mm-hmm. you can go to tonejunkiestore.com and, uh, if you're a Kemper user and then what you can purchase and download these profiles, you load them into your Kemper and then voila, here's mm-hmm. all these amazing amp tones that you can explore. So if you want to sound like Keith Richards or Jimi Hendrix or whatever, you can play through very similar amps. And uh, there's a range of sounds there. And uh, so that's what he does. And that's what his business does. He has some other things. But um, but it's you got started with Kemper, and that's still the bulk of your business. It's, it's still the bulk of the business. These. Yeah, I've been doing some more Helix stuff lately and, and, and making more IRs uh, because there's a lot of different units that just use IRs, you know, speakers and stuff. And there's a lot of guys who like to use their tube amp with uh, – with just a simulated speaker. So I also make some IRs and, um, and Helix presets and who knows what else in the future. But, um, but those are the two units that I kind of focus on right now. now. Kemper primarily. If you buy a Kemper, it comes preloaded with some profiles on, Uh but most users, uh, I mean, they want more. It's like the profiles are inexpensive. How much do you, is a typical profile pack cost? You know, packs, packs range from 10 to 40 bucks and there's often sales. So, I mean, there's always packs for 10 bucks. There's also a huge free, section. I'm a big believer that if you have just bought something like the Kemper, um, 
uh, people should be able to get, you know, really great high quality stuff in their hands. So there's a big tone junkie free pack. And I think I have five full free packs in there and they're no slouch amps. There's like a 65 London in there. Um, there is, uh, a couple divided amps, you know, that are profiled and they're just hundred percent free. And, and that's really, these just, are, uh, you know, these are like boutique amps that yeah. people would spend thousands of dollars just for one of these amps. Yeah. And you could get them for 10, 20, 30 bucks. Yeah. You, can get, you can get the profiles, mm -hmm. uh, uh, because HW here has, has profiled them. And here's the thing. It's like, you can just have fun and just go to town and say this weekend, mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to purchase a vintage Marshall pack yeah. and I'm just going to have fun going to town yeah. with all these vintage Marshall tones. And that's what a lot of people do is, you know, whatever pack, I try to release packs uh, uh, pretty often and, you know, a new pack will come out and uh, I always put out a couple free ones so people can try it. In the free pack, there's also like a 62 Vox AC30, some profiles and there's some Marshall ones. And, um, I try to uh, always uh, on my mailing list put out um, you know some free ones. So if Kemper users you know haven't heard of Tone Junkie, uh, I find it hard to believe. But <laughs> but um, uh, but but uh, you know there's some great free stuff. You know check it out. And um, a lot of people I get you know uh, messages, and that's what they'll do. They'll go, I'm not that into Mesa amps, but I bought this pack and I decided to you know learn this song or something. And oh my gosh, I love these tones. It's so well, fun. So let's just talk about that for a moment. Um, this is going to be my longest podcast ever, I think, by the <laughs> way. Okay. So it's like in the past, if you thought, hmm, this awesome, you know, Mesa Boogie amp costs how much? Could be two grand, three grand. Right. Yeah. What's the one we just profiled? The triple crown is expensive. That's uh, that's close to two grand used, I think. Two grand used. So you might think, I got... I'd have to spend $2,000 if I just wanted to have some fun and play with that amp for a weekend mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. profile pack Buy profile pack. Use it. Might cost you what? Uh, 30 bucks, 30 bucks. Assuming you have the Kemper, mm -hmm. you download the profile pack into your Kemper. Boom. Mm -hmm. You got all the sounds of that amp. Or, I mean, there's a, it's like a black Friday sale right now. So it's like 17 bucks. It's like half yeah. off, you know? Yeah. So it's um, like any amp in the world that you could, well, mm -hmm. any, like any, um, well-known amp. Mm -hmm. has, has been profiled. There's other companies I'm, I'm, that do yeah, this. Like I'm, I'm trying to cover it. I, you know, it's funny. I still run into amps that haven't been profiled and you know, they're not like you, you know, it'll be like, a uh, uh, you know, a Comet 16, you know, I mean, it's something that, you know, it's more popular in the boutique world. Um, or there's some vintage stuff. I haven't seen many, uh, tweed band masters out there. That's another amp I'm looking at right now. Um, but yeah, you know, I should add this to the conversation cause I know I have guitar players at all different levels who listen, um, the guitar amp is just uh, plays just as big a role in the sound as the guitar. Sure. So if you're thinking, well, why, why, I don't know, I got this little Fender practice amp. What do I need a different amp for? It's because the, I mean, it's like, what do I need a different guitar for? Mm -hmm. A Strat is different than a Les Paul. Is different than a semi hollow body. Is different than a Tele. Different than a. There we go on and on yeah, yeah. different and all it's of, like wine. There's different years, different grapes, different everything. And if you're a fan of popular music, you know, you're hearing Les Pauls, PRSs, uh, Telecasters, Stratocasters, mm -hmm. hollow guitars, you know, guitars with tremolos, all this, mm -hmm. all this stuff, all of these variety of tones, but you're also hearing all these different amps. And that is a huge part of the tone, the tones that we know, that we know and love. For sure. So, uh, sometimes getting a variety of sound doesn't involve getting more guitars, you mm -hmm. know, like in the old days before I really 
under, uh, uh, excuse me, in my old days, when I was a younger person, still trying to figure this all out, I kept thinking, well, I need a Strat. If I want to sound like Steve Ravon, I need a Les Paul. If I want to sound like, um, you know, uh, uh, Jimmy Page and, and so on. And I was completely overlooking the fact that I went out and got these guitars and brought them home and plugged them into the same crap amp that I had. <laughs> and I was never satisfied with my sound. Mm-hmm. And it took me a long time to realize, oh, the amp is, is important too. Yeah. Steve Yvonne's sound was, it was doing, it was amp. So that's why people love the Kemper because they get one device and then you could profile amps yourself if you have them. It's the Kemper is set up that you can do that. Or you pay an expert like HW here, 10, 20, 30, 40 bucks, and yeah. you get this whole collection that you load right into the Kemper and boom. You want a Fender Twin, you want a Plexi, you want a, a, a Vox, you want to sound like U2, you want to sound like Steve Ray Vaughan, mm-hmm. you want to sound like you know Jimmy Page. You could pull up yeah, and there's any a, amp sound you could imagine. Yeah, and we throw a bunch of different delays and stuff in there. So you know, there's a pack that's a little more edge-like. You know, and then there's maybe one that's a little more rockin' and heavy, and you're gonna there's different verbs and stuff. It just captures different, you know, throw choruses in for the more classic rock stuff. Maybe you know, sometimes you'll throw out, you'll you know, pull out some Rush licks, you know, on some of those demos, and then it's like, well, let's do we have a a chorus? It's just a way to get all these different tones, you know, and take them with you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Let's talk about those demos. So, um, uh. HW has a handful of guys. He's got this kind of like Kemper <laughs> Avengers, right? That uh, do, yeah. that do demos. So once he's got an, once he's got yeah. a, a bunch of profiles of an amp made, uh, so he brings in guys and we just play through it and just uh, play samples. And mm-hmm. I'm lucky enough to be uh, one of the guys to do that. I do a lot of the classic rock uh, yeah. stuff. So uh, that's why I call you the classic rock jukebox. There we go. Because you just like know, that. I just call out the song sometimes, and you just know. I got you know any kiss, and sure enough, <laughs> heck yeah. <laughs> Cut my teeth on that you know stuff. Of, yeah, um, yeah. So anyway, you can go to the uh, Tone Junkie TV YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah. And you can there. hear, you can watch video demos um, of all this stuff, and you'll probably recognize my long, skinny fingers in some of the um, uh, demos. Or you can go to ToneJunkieStore.com, which is where you mm-hmm. purchase the profile packs. But you also have those videos there, so they can sample the packs. Yeah, and there's right? all sorts of tips and tricks stuff, and all sorts of free stuff. And if, if people want to get a Kemper. Um, they can check out, there's a, uh, a tone junkie loaded Kemper that actually comes f- with a free everything pack. It's the same price as a normal Kemper, but it comes with all the tone junkie stuff loaded. It's not preloaded cause there's so much stuff. You can't fit it on a single Kemper, but, um, but it gets sent to you. You get a, a free everything pack. Uh, so if anybody's in the market for a Kemper, you can check that out. That's available at British audio. You can find links to that, uh, on the website mm-hmm. and, and stuff. So yeah, if you're a Kemper user, you definitely want to be checking out the Tone Junkie stuff, absolutely for sure. And if you're not a Kemper user, you still would probably enjoy um, exploring the website and just and watching the demos. Yeah, check out the YouTube channel. There's fun, fun just, stuff up yeah, there. And just hearing all the, uh, um, all the cool tones. So, man, we're going to wrap this up for now. But I have this – I got that feeling that I'm going to get a lot of responses <laughs> and questions yeah. and that – uh, we're going to have to get together uh, now and then in the yeah, future and do, do some follow-up uh, podcasts together. And, you know, we can talk more about the Kemper, but uh, I would love to maybe in the future um, talk about uh, some other options. Or I thought it might be cool for us to, to uh, go through some different scenarios. Like, okay, if you're a guitar player and this is kind of mainly where you play and what mm-hmm. you do, what would be kind of some of the best tools to put together for that situation? Or if, but, or if you're doing 
this type of music and this is where you play, you know, what if you're playing at church? What if you're playing at the local bar? What if you're just playing, you know, in the garage? I think it'd be really cool to kind of talk about because yeah, yeah. you're so familiar with um, um, gear. And uh, what if you're just a beginner and you're just learning, but you want to make the best of the experience, you know, you're not ready to drop money on a Kemper. That'd be overkill, but yeah. it'd be cool to kind of talk through some different stuff in the future. So yeah, I got a it. feeling we'll be doing this again. I think so. All right. You want to sign off? All right. This has been, uh, <laughs> this is my thing, right? Um, Desi and HW out. Well, this concludes today's podcast episode. Now you understand what the Kemper Profiling Amp is and why it has become so popular among guitar players. If you would like to hear sound samples of the profiles made by Tone Junkie, visit the website at ToneJunkieStore.com. ToneJunkieStore.com. You can also find Tone Junkie TV on YouTube. And if you would like to learn more about how to become a better guitar player, visit my website, GuitarMusicTheory.com. Once you get there, answer the questions I ask you about your playing, and I'll send you free custom video instruction calibrated to your current level. I'll put you on a plan to progressively play and sound better today in as little as 33 minutes. Go to GuitarMusicTheory.com. Click on the link in today's show notes. Well, thanks for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, please give it a five-star rating and post a positive review. Then stay tuned for more.